This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Stock Doctor. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Charlie Jamison, really excited to have you on uh, on Talkie Book. You're the first ever bond investor we've had uh, on the show, so that, that must just be a huge honour for you. Oh, thanks a lot, Chris. Uh, it is, actually, yeah. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about Jamison Coop Bonds and, and what you guys look to do. So Jamison Coop Bonds uh, is a, a niche bond market investor. We only invest in government bonds, which is a little bit different to most other bond funds in the country. Uh, the reason for that is that they are, in, particularly in times of stress, the ultimate form of defensive and protective type assets. They're all government backed in terms of their capital and in terms of the income that they pay. Uh, we'll no doubt talk a little bit about the journey of what the returns might look like, but obviously there is that guaranteed return component. At times, the returns can be quite accelerated if the price of money is changing and, and you know, the, the value of those cash flows, therefore, is changing. Uh, and so quite recently, of course, bonds have done very well for investors. Uh, and so primarily, they're there to play a role in a portfolio construction process. Uh, they will dampen volatility of portfolios. But being a very safe asset, they have a very low expected return. Uh, and so you know, people need to want to seek that. If you think that we do at the moment that, that the economy is not going so great and many asset prices probably look a little bit high, then you could move into bonds to be defensive and wait for your favourite growth assets to recalibrate and get a bit cheaper. Then you can move out of bonds very quickly. And that's really important, particularly when we've seen episodes like uh, you know, what we've been through in March, being able to get through the markets quickly to get to your favourite growth assets uh, is a real function we talk about called liquidity. And these are the most liquid instruments in the world. So they do play a really good role, particularly for, say, elderly uh, folks that are wanting to be a little less uh, risk, uh, risk or more risk averse, less risky in their portfolios. Can be a nice way to just have a more, you know, kind of calmer, smoother investment outcome profiles. Uh, but clearly, you know, if you take away the downside, you also potentially give up some of that upside that you can enjoy very quickly in equity markets. And so I reckon bonds are one of the least well understood asset classes, particularly in Australia. Could you start by maybe telling us about the size of the, the bond market and then why it's important that investors, not just in bonds, but also in equities and, and property, have an understanding of the bond market and how it potentially paints the attractiveness of, of whatever their chosen asset classes. Yeah, sure. So look, prior to the GFC, Australia really didn't have very much government debt. So the bond market was very, very small. It was only about $40 billion outstanding prior to that moment. And you well remember back in those days, the Howard and Costello governments had this enormous surplus from the mining boom uh, and the bond market was very much a forgotten concept. And the real, only reason it really stayed open was so banks could raise money over a risk-free rate of return, which we all learn about when we learn about economics as being what the government bond market will be. Fast forward through the GFC and clearly the bond markets had tremendous amount of growth primarily in the government space. And so the government's clearly the largest borrower in the country. But there's all different types of, of bonds. So we can have government bonds, we can have state government bonds, uh, supranational bonds, so institutions like the World Bank, which are essentially government agencies or government-backed, but you know, trying to affect slightly different outcomes in terms of providing low-cost financing. 
all the way down through um, you know, things like asset-backed security, so where you could pull up a bunch of mortgages, uh, or down to just corporate debt. Now, corporate debt is a great asset class. It's not one that I specialize in per se, uh, but it's something that you know, I don't criticize, even though I don't do that in terms of what our portfolios do. But you can hear about it for the wrong reasons, like recently Virgin have had bonds outstanding. Clearly, the folks that bought those bonds are in a lot of trouble because the company uh, is going through in a rapid transformation and, and you know, might only survive in a, a different way. So the bond market today has a similar market capitalization to the Aussie equity market, which is quite staggering. That's actually quite a bit smaller than the global kind of averages. So around the world, bond markets are around about three and a half times the size of global equity markets. So they really are absolutely behemoths. And all of this money that we're spending collectively around the world at the moment is essentially borrowed from the bond markets. And so uh, you can see why, you know, particularly in these types of episodes, why they can get very, very large indeed. I guess the reason why investors should have more interest in, in the asset class is, A, now that we've got much more uh, bond availability with regard to not only notional sizes, but different types of uh, offerings inside the fixed income market. And so to put that in context, it'd be like saying, well, there's only one product called equities, but we know there's large cap equities, there's mid caps, there's small caps, there's all different types of equities. In bonds is exactly the same. And so, uh, you know, there is much more choice for investors now. But the real reason that we think it's worth following is that you know, interest rates are the virus that affect all things. And so they are your discount rates in equities. They are your funding rates in property. And clearly the credit availability function is such an important driver of investor sentiment uh, and financial outcomes. And so we know that the price of money is very cheap at the moment but the availability of credit is probably not what it was. Uh, and that's why central bankers and governments have raced into that space rapidly, trying to make sure that that credit creation function can continue because it's really the thing that lubricates the entire financial system. And so you know, you've got to think about it like a, an engine with oil and credit really is the oil that makes the whole thing uh, buzz. And so bond markets get, get a bit more exciting when you put them in that context. And clearly, there's a lot of linkage through to the currency markets as well. So any investors that have currency exposures, obviously, currencies have been moving a huge amount recently. A lot of that has got to do with, with the bond market, you know, particular returns that are available in different bond market geographies and where investors might allocate capital across those geographies or, or uh, you know, choose particular currencies for, for the merits of its bond market. Diego Perilla's got a lovely metaphor uh, for portfolio construction around a soccer team, whereby you have a striker, and that might be your equities, then you've got your defensive players, and that might be your gold and your bonds, and then you've potentially got your interchange players, which might be the cash on the sideline. You just walk through maybe the inverse correlation that bonds usually have to stocks and why they can make such an important part of your portfolio construction. Yeah, that's it. So look, at, we look at it as a piece of, of, of a bigger jigsaw puzzle, and it's got a role to play. So clearly... As you rightly pointed out, bonds aren't always correlated perfectly negatively to equities, but under genuine financial stress, that's normally always the case. So when investors get nervous and they want to go to the guaranteed cash flows that are secured by the government. Now, sadly, sometimes governments don't die. We wish they would sometimes, but uh, they just don't. Whereas corporates can clearly die, and we know that uh, you know, equity markets can go through these violent corrections. So bonds are utilised in, in that manner. Uh, clearly, you know, if you do buy a bond and hold it into maturity, then you have a very, or well, have a zero volatility asset, 
Uh, sadly, at, the, you know, at this point in time, all interest rates are low in the world. So clearly they're not as attractive uh, from a historical point of view as they were. But that's not really the total journey. Obviously, as we said, uh, particularly under different inflation regimes, those bonds can still perform very, very well. And so no doubt we'll, we'll touch on it as we get into it. But even surprisingly, bonds that have a negative yield, i.e. a negative expected income return, can have a positive total return. Uh, and that's just, it starts to get a little bit technical in the way that the maths work. But think about that, like an equity that doesn't pay a dividend or will have high cash requirements, it doesn't stop the business from valuing higher. It just might not leave you with a dividend check every six months. And so that's been one of the things that certainly since I started my career has been completely recalibrated. I guess uh, I started when interest rates were a lot higher. We are broadly in a, a, a lower inflationary kind of environment, a disinflationary environment. Uh, there's lots of talk about what COVID will mean for that, you know, further down the line. I think almost certainly in the near term, it's very deflationary. But, you know, we know the reasons why that is. You know, we've got very powerful technology change, lack of unionisation. There's been this huge kind of globalisation. Um, so, you know, bond markets have done very well. Uh, and so they've got a really interesting role to play, I guess, in terms of risk-adjusted returns. So if you think about, you know, the volatility that you experience as an equity investor to get from point A to point B, if you could go from halfway to point B with no volatility, well, that might be very comforting for some investors who don't want to lose any sleep at night uh, and know that they're just looking for a positive return uh, with very little uh, you know, capital stress in, in terms of the, the, the capital value of their investments. Uh, and it also can help smooth out that return journey, as we said, and be used as a dynamic asset allocation tool because they are very liquid, where if you are waiting to buy your favourite growth equities when they're deeply discounted, exactly like they were in March, then you can get to them very quickly and, uh, and lock in you know, great uh, entry levels on those types of assets. And hopefully because of that negative correlation, come out of bond assets at a premium. So you're buying something at a discount, you're selling something at a premium, really you're making money on both sides and that's a really great way to uh, tactically asset allocate through the market cycle. So you mentioned negative interest rates there, which we're seeing in, in Europe and Japan and various places around the world. And like you, you said, you can still make capital appreciation on the price of bonds, even if that yield is, is nominally negative. There still must be a certain limit to how negative uh, uh, bond yields can get. I mean, I don't think they're going to go to negative 30%. So it's, at some stage, we do get to the end of the cycle where bond prices can't really appreciate much higher. We've been in a big bull run since the early 1980s on bonds. There comes a point where there looks like there's going to be even a, a ceasing of that capital appreciation or a paradigm shift altogether. How do you feel about that idea and, and how are you guys playing that potential? Yeah, look, you're dead right. I mean, I fully agree we're not going to negative 30% interest rates anytime soon. We may go a little bit negative, uh, but what really is important for us, I guess, is the term structure of interest rates. So, when you think about the maturity profile of a bond market, clearly normally in longer dated securities, there is a high yield to compensate for more time uncertainty and the like. Uh, that's not always the case, but generally that's pretty much the case. And those longer dated bonds generally always stay at positive yields. But some of these numbers are really extraordinary. Last year, for instance, there's, two, there's three really big markets that have been negative. Japan, as you rightly pointed out, has basically had zero interest rates since 1995. And it bond market just keeps grinding away to producing these total returns. They're not spectacular, but they're in the kind of one to 4% range. 
when the cash rate is zero, that's actually not that bad. Germany is the other obvious one, and Switzerland. Now, at one stage last year, Switzerland had a 10-year bond yield of negative 1.2%. You're guaranteed to lose $1.20 for every $100 that you invested. But the total return of that index in August of last year was plus 14%. So it starts to get a bit mind-melty with the way that the maths actually works. You must say, well, how rationally can that happen? Well, clearly, under a deflationary expectation, that's something that investors will actually seek. Uh, and clearly, you know, you've got to remember that most participants in the bond market, about 49%, are participating for non-economic reasons. If you buy life insurance, for instance, the insurer that sells you the product looks at the actuary table and says, well, mathematically, you're likely to die at some particular time, at which point in time we have a liability. And so we need to match that with an asset. And the regulator won't allow us to hold just pure equities against that because of the volatility. So a lot of these things, you know, actually technically are kind of mechanically occur in the bond market just because of the legacy of the way that the financial systems have been set up. But yeah, I mean, there is a limitation to that. Um, you know, frankly, we think that having got to these interest rate levels, it's very, very difficult for interest rates to rise. There's simply too much debt in the world. And we have a problem with what we call escape velocity. So to put it very quickly, if you have an enormous mortgage and mortgage rates go back up to 10%, Unless your income goes up to satisfy the mortgage, you have a big problem. And that's the world over has this big problem. It has too much debt. And so that means that when interest rates do rise, we tend to find that economies slow down very quickly and then interest rates fall again. So that doesn't mean that they're not going to move around a little bit, but they're not likely to turn and go into a new 30-year trend of higher interest rates anytime soon. What's more likely is that, and certainly from looking at those Japanese-type examples of Germany, Switzerland, is that they stay very low, they do continue to move around, and that probably leads quite well to active management. If you can find a good active manager that can generate alpha on your behalf, uh, then you know, clearly with a slight expected return plus some alpha outcome, look, sadly, that's probably the world we live in. It's gonna be a lower return environment going forward, uh, and, and that's probably the way that we'll be looking to play it, certainly for the next little while, but it's not to say that we couldn't see some negative interest rates here. It's, um, we don't ever hope for that, but I see Bill Evans, the chief economist at Westpac, who's probably the best regarded economist with regard to forecasting the RBA. I wrote an article in the, the media, actually just uh, around this RBA meeting here in, in June, uh, suggesting that the RBA should be considering negative interest rates. So never say never. It was only six months ago the RBA was telling us, you know, we're not likely to do quantitative easing. And boom, here we are. You know, we've already got $50 billion worth of quantitative easing running through the system and no doubt there'll be more to come. So you mentioned the enormous debt levels in governments all around the world. There's only two real ways to eradicate. Well, I guess there's three ways. There's you can default on your debt, which is pretty unpleasant. You can pay it back through strong growth or you can inflate it away, which is what countries did after, you know, America did after World War II. They kept interest rates... Uh, much lower than inflation and eventually inflated all the debt that they created through World War II. And if I was to look at which of those three options is likely to occur through this process, uh, default in Western countries appears unlikely. Um, paying it back through strong growth appears unlikely, which then gets to inflating it away by interest rates maintaining being much lower than inflation. It can be really hard to see how they create inflation without helicopter money or huge amount of fiscal spending, but can you see a world where 
basically central banks cap bond yields, even as inflation does come. And I think they'll be able to figure out a way to, to, to get there. And it may be universal basic income. Can you see a, a world where they just keep capping rates and keep half fibbing about what the real inflation numbers are until that debt starts to look a bit more manageable? Yeah, I think you're dead on with the, the three alternatives you suggested. I'd say there's probably a fourth, which is you get into this paralysis period where living standards just incrementally fall. And what ends up happening there is you drive vast populism. And that is exactly what we're seeing around, you know, broad Western economies. Just to think that, you know, the kind of cradle of, of democratic capitalism being the US and the UK for a moment there had incredibly left-wing alternatives in Sanders and in Corbyn. Kind of amazing to think. And then this universal basic income, there hasn't really been any debate about it. We're just handing out the money. And of course, once people get used to that, it's very hard to take back. So yeah, I do believe that that's, that's very likely. Um, certainly what you're talking about with the kind of yield curve control, where we say that the interest rate on a 10-year bond doesn't ever move beyond this level. We've had that in Japan now for quite some time. Uh, and so I can see that as being very likely. I would absolutely expect the Federal Reserve in the United States could do that later on this year. Um, and, you know, it'll be a sad time for the bond investor. It won't leave me with as much to do. But certainly, yeah, it, it's a way that they can guarantee that the sustainability of that debt is viable in terms of paying interest on, on that money. Ironically, as we've borrowed all this money because interest rates are falling, the actual interest bill hasn't gone up. Because if you owe $100 at 5%, well, clearly, if you borrow $200, but the interest rate's only two and a half, it's the same payment. Uh, and so clearly, you know, governments are very uh, in invested, I guess, in keeping those interest rates down uh, and making sure that they have uh, programs which control that. They will argue that it's to stimulate the economy and it's to have low benchmark interest rates for us to all then go and borrow over the, over the top of. Clearly, there is a risk-free element to the interest rate and then there is a credit risk element when pricing things like corporate debt or when pricing things like home mortgages. Um, and, and you know clearly, if we can keep that risk-free rate low, well, then there's a, a public relations narrative that that's good for everybody. But let's not be fooled. It's good for governments too because they've racked up a pretty big bill. Uh, but the devil will be in the detail as we try and work out how to work our way out of these solutions. And clearly, I see yield curve control as being a big part of an, an answer or an antidote to that. Uh, should we get that little push in inflation later on? So you've got the, the Japanese central bank almost buying all government bonds. You've got potential for yield curve, con curve control, particularly in places like the United States going forward. Is there a risk that you lose price discovery in the bond market and private investors, it's essentially an asset class that's, that's lost to them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and what you've seen in, in other jurisdictions that have gone through this is the rise of what's called absolute return strategies. So more hedge fund-like strategies that rather than owning the asset class and trying to optimise the asset class with a long-only bias, uh, they'll then introduce other strategies where they can essentially short sell the market or use leverage to gross up returns and these types of things. Now, the role of, of you know, genuine market capitalism in terms of setting prices has been deeply distorted. We've only got to see you know, the trillions and trillions of dollars that are spent by you know, five or six, not even publicly elected officials in the United States who have literally got out, you know, not only the bazooka, they got out the entire US military hardware system and fired it all in one shot. And it's a hell of a stimulus. And you know, I think the lessons from the last crisis were you've got to stimulate hard and you've got to go early. 
and they've certainly done both of those things. Now trying to rein it back in is going to be difficult and let markets become naturally volatile again. One of the things that it does do is it suppresses volatility. And so you've only got to look at the way equities are performing at the moment or the Aussie dollar. It's this grinding kind of rally, which it doesn't really have you know, the zigs and the zags that, uh, that folks that want to take it on from both sides would otherwise enjoy. Uh, it does make it very difficult if you're on the wrong side of it. You don't necessarily get the impetus to, to close your position as quickly without that volatility signal and that feedback loop from the, the price mechanism. So I think there is a real danger of that. Uh, but as I said, I think, you know, it's going to be such a big part of what's required as a solution that it is quite likely. Um, so sadly, it's something that we probably would expect to see more of rather than less. And all the, the clever macro guys that I follow um, spend a lot of time bashing the various central banks around the world. And I, I don't want to get into that just by way of copying them, but it does become uh, clear if you're following it that these negative interest rates or, you know, zero interest rate policy has been huge for asset prices, but the velocity of money hasn't gone anywhere and it really hasn't hit or helped Main Street. Does it ever surprise you that the left side of politics haven't really targeted central banks? So they'll, they'll target sort of governments or corporations that benefit from these ultra low interest rate policies. Does it ever surprise you that they don't go to the source itself that's created so much inequality? Look, I think that moment is absolutely coming. Um, as I said earlier, you know, this kind of polarisation of politics and, and, you know, as you point, rightly pointed out, Main Street left behind whilst Wall Street's booming. Uh, that moment is coming and it comes in political reset. And so, you know, not only are we going to see that we've got race riots in the United States at the moment, which is supposedly about a particular incident. I don't think it's necessarily just about that. I think it's also about 40 million unemployed people incredibly frustrated that particularly in the lower echelons, they've been, you know, the, the major uh, folks that have been impacted, they can't stand shoulder to shoulder on production lines or the like, whilst the middle classes can take their laptop computer home and keep going. I would absolutely expect to see more of that. And I think that this will become a much more politicised uh, institution. So I do think that things like modern monetary theory and basic universal income, uh, they might not necessarily be where my intellectual horsepower would want to be for the best way to allocate capital in an economy. But that doesn't mean I don't think they won't happen because invariably the people will will it. Uh, and so I do think that, yeah, I mean, there's going to be huge discussion around this, that you know, the amounts of money that are being committed uh, and for the benefit of whom. Yeah. Now, you know, the, the architects will say that it's so important for us to maintain the functioning of the financial system. And I do absolutely agree with that. Uh, but it really is quite sickening to see, you know, executives in use those types of programs to buy back equity and remunerate themselves in stock options and all those types of things. I think that all needs to be discussed uh, and, um, and rationalised better. Uh, and it'll certainly be a part of a go forward conversation, I've got no doubt. Charlie, it's been great to have you on. I've loved uh, love being able to sit down and talk bond prices, bond yields and, uh, and a bit of macro. So thanks very much for making the Good time. Good Chris. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Charlie. If you're interested in building your own investment process, make sure you check out Stock Doctor, the proud partner of Talk Your Book. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.